Our sermon today is taken from Acts chapter 5, verse 12 to 16. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Thus says the Lord. Good morning again, friends. We are continuing today in our series, the book of Acts. Uh, and if you remember, the book of Acts is all about the beginnings of the early church, how it started, how it grew. And right now we're in chapter five, and this may have been easy to miss, but Luke, uh, the author of the book of Acts, throughout these five chapters, every now and then has thrown in kind of these short, small summary passages that kind of summarizes what's been going on in the story so far. Okay, and there's been three of them. The first one was in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. The second one was in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to 35. And the third one is our passage today that we just read, Acts chapter 5, verse 12 to 16. These are all summary passages to explain what's been going on in the story so far. And the first two summary passages in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, Luke there summarizes the internal relationships and the internal workings of the early church. But now in Acts chapter 5, in our third summary passage, Luke here is summarizing uh, the external outworkings, the, how the church relates to the world around them. Um, that's kind of what's being summarized here in our passage today. And what we see happening so far when the church interacts with the outside world is that wherever they went, that part of the world starts to look more and more like heaven. That's kind of the picture being painted here. Peter was walking and it's as if the part of the earth that he treaded started to look more and more like heaven. People are coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. People are getting healed. Uh, people who are afflicted are being comforted. Whatever part of the world the early church touched, it started to mirror heaven. The picture here of the early church is that they were a life-giving stream of water washing over this dry desert land and wherever they went, life, vitality, renewal was birthed. It's really a, a live picture of the Lord's prayer. Is it not? We pray this every Sunday. We pray it just now. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Father's name will be praised and hallowed when? When heaven bears itself down upon earth. And when the little corner of your world starts to look more like heaven. Now, if, if Covenant City Church, as a church, if we want to be this life-giving water stream to the city that we're in, or let's not go too far, let's just take it down to our personal lives. If you and I want to be this life-giving stream to our spouse, to our parents, to our kids, to our neighbors, to the community we're in, to our local church, 
If we want to be that, we see here three things God points out in this passage that's absolutely crucial for us to get in order for us to be able to do this, okay? What are they? First, we've got to understand the necessity of our involvement. Two, we've got to trust in the sufficiency of God's power. And three, we've got to remember the one who mediates on our behalf. Okay, if we want to be this life-giving stream of water to the people we love around us, we've got to understand the necessity of our involvement, trust in the sufficiency of God's power, and remember the one who mediates on our behalf. First point, we've got to understand the necessity of our involvement. Look at verse 12. There's a key phrase that we're going to go back to there a lot, and, and it's the phrase, by the hands of the apostles, okay? So let's read again in verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And what I want us to first see here is a simple fact that although God is completely sovereign over all the earth, although God can work and bring heaven out of earth through any way, through any means that he wants, he yet chooses to do it here in Acts chapter 5 through or by the hands of the apostles. Or in other words, he chooses to do it through a mediating agent, through a secondary cause. You see, and this isn't unique to just Acts chapter 5. This has been the case throughout the Bible. Genesis 5 to 11, God used Noah. In Genesis chapter 12 onwards, God used Abraham and then his descendants. In, in Exodus, God used Moses and then after him, Joshua. We can keep going. First, second Samuel, God used David, then after that, the major and the minor prophets and the end of the Old Testament there. Ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3, God no longer directly works uh, in, in an intimate way like he did pre-sin, pre-fall. Ever since then, he's worked through mediating agents. Now, did God need them? No, did God need Noah to help him out or Moses or David or the apostles here in Acts chapter 5? Of course not. He needed nobody to do his work for him, but yet he chooses to use them. And this is a very important biblical truth that unfortunately a lot of Christians, especially we reform people, misunderstand and, and undermine the truth that even though God is sovereign, completely sovereign, he's free to do whatever he wants, but for the most part, he chooses to work in the world through secondary causes. So in other words, God's sovereignty does not negate the reality of cause and effect. If you don't do anything, it probably won't happen. God here worked by the hands of the apostles. We just read it, by the way, in the Western Presbyterian Confession of Faith, the document that summarizes the Reformed faith, the Bible, we would say, right? Chapter 5, verse 2, what did we just read? We read, God is the first cause, and in relationship to him, everything happens unchangeably and infallibly, okay? However, by this same providence, he orders things to happen from secondary causes, okay? So the primary cause, God, his providence, orders things to happen from secondary causes. As a result of secondary causes, something must inevitably happen. In the Bible, God's sovereignty does not negate the reality of cause and effect. Let's use this made-up case study to make this point a little bit clearer, okay? Let's say a mystic is hanging out with an empiricist and a Christian. Just, I know, hold on, it'll be clear here in a second. A mystic is hanging out with an empiricist and a Christian. And the mystic, who is, by the way, in financial need in this picture, 
says, I don't need your money. God will provide for me. See, it's a very mystical way to view life, right? And then the empiricist, meaning the person who believes only in the things you can touch and see, okay? The empiricist says, oh my goodness, he rolls his eyes. God's not the one that gives you money. People give you money. Stop being so mystical and weird, okay? And the Christian butts in. He puts his hand in his pocket, takes out his wallet, gives the mystic his money, and says, here, this is my money. Take it. It's from God. You see, the Bible charges both mysticism and empiricism under a false dichotomy. It's not either or. It's not either God or man. God here is a primary cause, but he works through the apostles as a secondary means to do what? To bring about the salvation of others, verse 14, and to renew whole communities, verse 15 and 16. Believing in the reality of cause and effect on an earthly level does not betray our belief of God's sovereignty in a divine level. It doesn't. You know what this means? This means if you want to see people around you coming to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you want the piece of your earth, little corner of your earth to look more like heaven tomorrow than it did yesterday, then you got to do something. you got to do something. Your willingness to share the gospel to others, it matters. It has a direct cause and effect. And God's ordained both. Your commitment to display Christ to your spouse and your kids, they matter. Your willingness to lead community group well matters. You saying no to certain activities in order to represent Christ better matters. You self-regulating your anger when you're angry um, in order to portray and display the forgiveness and patience of Christ to others, all that matters. Your refusal to let the love of money control you, your pursuit of other members in the church who are struggling, they all have a cause and effect, and you won't see results if you just sit around and do nothing. To say, ah, God, God will do it. He's sovereign. I don't need to do anything. That's not Christianity. That's mysticism. And look, you can be the most reformed person out there. Though you still drink Panadol when you have a headache. <laughs> you know why? Because on a functional level, you know this is true. There is cause and effect. We hire tutors or help our kids study so that they can be better at subjects. We eat in order to be full. Cause and effect, cause and effect. We believe this in every other area in life, but why is it, for some reason, when it comes to someone receiving Christ, or when it comes to bringing about results that are spiritual in nature, all of a sudden, we're very quick to say, God's sovereign, I don't need to do anything. Why the inconsistency? Well, I want to propose to you that the cause of the inconsistency is actually fear. I think we fall into inaction and use the God sovereign, he'll do it card when it comes to spiritual things. Not because we actually believe God's sovereignty negates human responsibility, but because we just don't want to pay the cost of obeying Christ. We just don't want to be judged by the world for following Christ. I know this is true for me. I've said it so many times. I've used God's sovereignty as an excuse for Christian in action so many times. And it's also true for the Christians in our passage today. Look at verse 13. The early church struggled with this. As the apostles were kind of doing all these things um, in 
in, in public, it says, none of the rest dared to join them. Okay, who's the rest here? Well, the rest is the other members of the early church. No one dared to join them. They're all scared. Why? Because they were out there doing these amazing things for God. By the way, they're doing it in Solomon's portico, which, which is the entrance of the temple, which is a very public area filled with a lot of Pharisees. Okay, so the apostles were doing these things for God um, at a very public space filled with a lot of people who hated the gospel. And the others didn't want to join them. They were scared. What if the Pharisees see us? You know, what if we get persecuted? What if they ridicule us? So they didn't dare to join. I struggle with it. Uh, they struggled with it. And, and if you struggle with that as well, here's where the rest of the passage, we see God encouraging us um, about and reminding us of a truth that we must remember in order to start doing something for God despite the cost. Trust in the sufficiency of God's power. Let's continue the verse 15. Okay, so what we see here is that, yes, God used the hands of the apostles, verse 12, to bring heaven down to earth, but we continue the passage. We see him doing it in such a way that makes it absolutely clear it was God's power that did the work and not the apostles. Okay, look at verse 15. People were carrying the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, and as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on them. So the people wanted just Peter's shadow to fall on them because Peter's shadow already did all the work. Now, what is that all about? That's a weird part here. Well, this is all about God showing off his power in a very contextualized way. What do I mean? Back then, in the Greco-Roman culture, people would believe that your shadow is kind of the extension of your body. Okay, so a lot of influential philosophers and thinkers and writers back then would, would say that, would write that. We know that's not true today, but that was a cultural belief back then. So God, okay, in a very contextualized way, used Peter's shadow to do the work. Now, now think about the message there that God's trying to tell people. He didn't use Peter's arms, right? The part of his body that's strong. He didn't use Peter's feet. He didn't even use the tip of Peter's pinky toe. God used Peter's shadow, the weakest part of his quote-unquote body. What's God trying to communicate here to people back then? He's trying to communicate to them that he does not need Peter's help. There is nothing about Peter that he's dependent upon, like his strong leadership skills or his ability to speak publicly or his bright mind or his quick wit, you know, or his money. God didn't need any of that. I'm using his shadow, God's saying here. And this has been the pattern throughout the Bible. Whenever God uses secondary means, a mediator to accomplish his work, he always goes out of the way to make sure to communicate that it's not their strength that's doing the work. Think about it. God used the staff of a washed up old shepherd to take down a global scale military. God used the sling of a small boy to defeat an army led by a giant. God used the lunchbox of a snot-nosed kid to feed 5,000 families. And here in our passage today, God used the shadow of an uneducated, brute ex-fisherman, <laughs> Peter, to bring heaven down to earth. What's our excuse? What do we think we lack to not then join in God's work? Our God is God that uses shadows. 
What do we lack? Charm? Ability to present things? Answers to hard questions? God can use you. Now, remember, let's not forget our first point and become overtly mystical here because God does use secondary causations to accomplish his goals. So excellence in performance does have a real outcome. It matters. Your competence in a field, your knowledge of subjects, hard work, putting in the hours, all those things have a direct cause, outcome. Even in spiritual things, it does. If we forget that, you know, we'll become inactive and lazy. However, on the flip side, if we think it's all up to us, if, for example, I think that your eternity hangs ultimately on my words right now, <laughs> you know, or if you're a community group member, that the spiritual growth of your community group members, um, if you're a leader there, depends fully on you, of course we'll quit. I'll say, get somebody else to preach. I don't want that kind of pressure. It's crushing. You see, both mysticism and empiricism lead to inaction because one makes you lazy and the second makes you want to quit. But the Christian worldview, it gives you a reason to act. God works through secondary causes, yet without crushing you with unrealistic expectations and pressure because it's God's power that's going to do it. Ultimately, it both motivates you and frees you up to go, to act, to work, to minister to others, to share the gospel, do something. Because your part of the earth will not look like heaven unless you do. Right? Let's summarize. First, the call. Do something. God works by the hands of his people. Second, the spark or the courage for you to start is God's power. Don't let you get freezed up by unrealistic pressure. God's power is going to do it. Go. Do something. Lastly, the fuel. The call, the spark, the fuel. What's going to keep you going? Third point, remember the one who mediates on your behalf. There's something interesting that F.F. Um, uh, Bruce and also another commentator, well-respected commentators on the book of Acts, notes about our passage today. Um, they said that we got to read our passage in light of the previous story before this in verses 1 to 11. Remember what Job preached on last week, the story of Ananias and Sapphira? The story of two rich landowners, okay, who sinned against the Holy Spirit and died immediately. That was a story, right? These commentators said that these two stories are interconnected and there's a contrast between the two that's meant to communicate something. If you read the story of Ananias and Sapphira from uh, verses 1 to 11, you'll see a pattern there that when they sinned, the emphasis is that they sinned directly against the Holy Spirit. There's this kind of direct nature about their offense. It says it three times in verses 1 to 11. First, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, verse 3, and then that they lied to God, verse 4, and then that they lied to the Spirit of the Lord, verse 9. You see, there's this immediate, direct connection between them and God, which then brought about death. And what Luke is trying to emphasize here is that if we relate directly to God in an unmediated way, the result is judgment and death. It doesn't matter how rich you are, like Ananias and Sapphira. But now contrast this with the very first verse of our passage today, verse 12. Our passage opens up immediately with the mention of what in verse 12? A mediator. It begins by saying that God does his work, when God does his work by the hands of his apostles, when there's an in-between between God and his people, then the result isn't judgment and death like the previous story, but rather 
its salvation and redemption. So what is Luke trying to remind us here from the flow of verses 1 to 11 to 12 and 16? He's trying to remind us of a person. He's trying to remind us of our need for a mediator. He's trying to remind us of Jesus Christ. He's he's, he's sharing the gospel here through this progression. If you go directly to God without a mediator, you will perish, you'll die. But when God works toward you through a mediator, you'll be blessed. And look, you gotta remember this. If you wanna keep being representatives of Christ in this world to others, despite the cost, despite the sacrifice that's involved in that, then you can't forget. You gotta remember how Christ represents you to the Father first. Or else, if you forget that fact, you'll burn out. You'll burn out. First John chapter 2, verse 1 says that Jesus is our advocate to the Father. He represents us. An advocate here is a legal term, okay? Like a lawyer representing you in a legal court of law. So the picture here in 1 John chapter 2 is that Jesus is kind of giving this testimony about you, advocating for you in, in the heavenly court of law, saying to the Father, he's innocent. She's clean. He's not guilty. She's blameless. That's what Jesus is saying about you if you've received him. And you're thinking to yourself, that's false representation. (laughs) Doesn't he know I'm not clean? How can Jesus say that? How can he be my advocate if I'm not innocent, actually? You know, if I've done things in my life that's shameful, if I am full of sin, if I'm not blameless. Well, that's the whole point, friends, of his representation. He's not presenting you to the Father based upon your record, but based upon His. He's advocating, He's presenting you to the Father. How everything He's done now gets placed on you. It's yours and everything that you've done, all the sins you and I have committed, He's paid for on the cross. He's advocating for you based on His righteousness. You are clean in Him. You are innocent in Him. You are guiltless in him because he's innocent and sinless and blameless. You got to remember that, what Luke's trying to communicate here. It is costly to become the representative of Christ here on earth and to do his work here. It's costly, but you got to remember that Jesus already paid a much greater cost to represent you to the Father. That'll be the only fuel that's going to keep you going, despite of what following Christ might cost you here on earth. You want God to bear heaven down upon your family or your community. You want your local church and your city to look more like heaven tomorrow than it did yesterday. First, do something. The sovereign God works through secondary means, so do something. Second, remember it's not all up to you. God's power is what's ultimately going to bring about the fruit. He's a God that uses even shadows. So go, do something, be courageous. And third, remember that the same Jesus who you're called to to represent on earth already did the unimaginable in order to present you the Father.
So be passionate as you do all these things that you're doing for him. Do something, be bold, be God-reliant, be excellent, be passionate, be humble, be God-trusting. Think about what it is you can do for his kingdom and do it. And may heaven bear down upon the ground that you tread and the Father's name be hallowed because your little part of the world is looking more and more like heaven tomorrow than it did yesterday as a result of it. I hope and I pray that we'll all join in in this work and do just that. Let's pray. Father, we come to you asking forgiveness that we have used the true doctrine of your meticulous sovereignty, but yet we've used it as an excuse to not do anything, whether that's because of laziness or fear. Help us, Father, uh, not make decisions based on things that are perhaps hidden from us, your hidden will. We don't know how all these things work in intricate detail. Help us make decisions based on your revealed will, and your revealed will is, is for us to obey you, share the gospel, be representatives of you on this earth, feed those who are needy, care for those who are dis despised, love those and, and, and represent the gospel and preach the gospel to them so to make disciples of all nations. Help us to do this and I pray that um, you would allow us to continue and help the city look a little bit more like heaven tomorrow than it did yesterday by uh, using us, if you so will, but also by your power, driven by your cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.